0: Welcome to episode six of Conversations with Neighbours. My name is Huda Tayob, and in this episode, we ask what lines of flight reveal of our shared planetary futures. We dig through Filmic and Sonic archives with Tandi Lowenson and ponder on the speculative histories of black flight.
1: Now, space here refers to the universe. That untapped pool of asteroid resources, planets to colonize, and in which we are told a space force orbits to provide superiority and command over this dominion. By implication, this is for some atmospherically over others.
0: We travel from Cape Town to Nagasaki with Ilse Wolf in search of health, care, and black peace on Earth. Tread softly. The walls breathe peace. Deep dark, black peace, and the wind don't blow. With Victor Gama, we trace the line from Thomas More's Utopia to Apartheid South Africa's nuclear program and the unfinished work of Angolan anthropologist Augusto Zita.
2: If you go out there and you try to conquer territory from other people and then turn it into an ideal society, and then you want to preserve that ideal society, With this kind of expansionism, you're creating immense tensions around the world. So you've got to defend what you conquered, And the ultimate weapon is the nuclear weapon.
0: The first voice you will hear from is that of the architectural researcher Tandi Lowenson. Drawing on the work of the pioneering rap group A Tribe Called Quest to the Zambian space program of the mid-60s, led by Edward N'Coloso, Tandi argues that taking black flight seriously might reveal reflexive positions emancipatory methodologies, and insurgent architectures in tender, wayward, and beautiful ways.
1: For the archive of forgetfulness, these are a few thoughts on what I am calling Black Flight, formed somewhere between Lusaka, Harare, Joburg, Dubai Airport, and London, and with the help of those who have taken off before me. You'll hear my voice, and also the voices of others, in large part the members of a tribe called Quest, sampled here for the purposes of research, reflection and furthering a body of thought up in the air. This is being recorded at the top of a six-storey housing block in Tower Hamlets, London in November 2020. The windows are open and my neighbours are home. This is a communally produced piece comprising the noise, sound, air, beat, breath and breathlessness of Lockdown. A tribe called Quest's last single, "The Space Program," begins with a sample from the 1974 black exploitation film *Willy Dynamite*, in which a so-called underworld character, Bell, seeks to organize a black community against the forces of a racializing, oppressive system of control. The track begins.
2: I want to deal with a bigger insult, man. The heat, the heat, the heat, the heat, the heat. It's coming down hard. Got to get oh. shit time right. In the
1: film, in brightly coloured satin suits, complete with fur and fringe-lined lapels, in a kitsch explosion of a room, all gold fittings and timber cladding, and in which a wildcat sleeps quietly under a lounge chair, a group of black pimps identify that unless they're collectively organised to construct life otherwise a system designed to capture, control and extinguish the air from our lungs, will always find ways to prevail. Their vision is, of course, fundamentally flawed in that the success of this alternative life is to be gained in the policing of black women's bodies and the unfair exploitation of their labour. And this is a failing which the narrative arc of the film draws out as a cautionary tale for radical movements, making it an almost perfect critique of racial capitalism, then and now. This moment, as one YouTube commenter posits, is probably the most important scene in black cinema, and to me, the space program is a similarly seismic moment in black radical cultural production. Now, space here refers to the universe, that untapped pool of asteroid resources, planets to colonize, and in which we are told, a space force orbits to provide superiority and command over this dominion. By implication, This is for some, atmospherically over others. It is also the expanse of unknown quantity and delineation in which we find our currently embattled and implagued planet, largely comprising a dark matter and a dark energy of which we know very little. At the end of verse 2, when Q-Tip (laughs) raps, If you haven't got it by now, The space program refers to the impossibility of some to even survive in the face of a system in which privatisation and profit reign over production and place, and with the associated exploitative dehumanisation of black people this entails. Tribe Called Quest, go on. And we're presented with a future which looks to the galaxy for more resources, whilst talking of a sustainability of an extractive way of life, and indeed, the extraction of black life. In the last single of a 30-year repertoire of black sound and sonic refusal, to use the terms of the scholar DJ Lene Denise, a Tribe Called Quest are clear. They call on us to build. They call on us to make.
3: Make, make, make. Let's make something happen. Let's make something happen. Let's make something happen. Let's make something happen.
1: To make life otherwise. And they show that the scale of the creative project required for this is none other than that of taking flight. Of black flight. At turns, the video for the space programme has Ali, Q-Tip, Jarobi and Fife in a spaceship. And yet for them, there is no black future in
3: space. Simultaneously,
1: we see them wandering through a desert and engaged in a strategic battle of minds with a faceless suited figure, synonymous with a hegemonic white capital class. I'm reminded of a journey of my own similarly spent between the heavens and the ground, navigating Lusaka's illustrious and in parts overgrown Leopards Hill Cemetery, accompanied by a good friend, taxi driver and my research collaborator Paul Mumbi. We were following a team of gravediggers, armed with spades and grass cutters, working to negotiate the paradoxical abundance of life bursting from the ground, in search of the burial site of the pioneer of Zambia's independence era space program. Director General Edward Festus, Mukuka, and Colosso. Had it been allowed to continue, Colosso's space program was one which a tribe called Quest might well have found resonance when they say,
3: For now, conformists, one hit of quitters, for Tyson types, figures. Let's, let's get, get it together. together, come on, let's make it. Make it. Gotta make it, to make it, to make it, to make it, to make something happen. To make something happen, to make, make something happen, let's make something happen.
1: Colosso constructed a rigorous and inventive course of training, which included performance, physical exercise, simulations of anti-gravity, and class-based study. The program was equipped with a spacecraft and a team of specially trained astronauts, and led by a black woman, Martha Mwamba. Footage and accounts of the cadets show that engagement in Colossal's programme was taken very, very seriously. And that this programme was unfolding against the backdrop of Zambian independence is pertinent. As Namwali Serpell has written about, Colossal's work throughout his life was associated with his history of struggle for the emancipation of black people in the region from British colonial control. Alongside the space programme, in seeking to make the break from colonialism, the newly independent Zambian government undertook a series of economic and social reforms that would radically restructure relations between people property and the earth. And I'm reminded of this when I hear Tribe Called Quest. Reputation ain't blown, reparations ain't flowing if you find stuck in the creek, you better start roaming. And in Zambia, through the abolition of private property and the nationalization of the mines, the country's land and minerals were no longer matter for generating profit, but rather matter that had the means to enrich the lives and the futures of the Zambian population. Oh, hey.
0: Where? Here. A small step for mankind, but a giant step for us.
1: Towards the same ends, the concurrent Zambian space program required of black Zambians to craft a narrative in which black people were themselves no longer seen as resources, and were not only free to flourish on Earth, but could aspire to even greater heights too. That this group of Zambian astronauts never made it into orbit is neither here nor there. This was a project that was not solely concerned with leaving Earth's orbit nor was it preoccupied with a future emancipation. Arguably, in conceiving of and constructing the programme, the journey that in Colossal sought to undertake was already successful. Fittingly, the motto of the programme is given in the present indefinite tense. Wherever fate and human glory are found, we are always there. This emancipation is ubiquitous, occurring wherever. It has occurred and will continue unceasingly into the future, the Zambian astronauts are always already there. In Black Hole's A Brief History of Time, M. norbisi Philip gives us a number of re-articulated, reconfigured cosmic definitions of the universe. Philip writes, Spacetime, the four-dimensional space whose points are events. You cannot talk about space as it relates to black people, to African people, without talking about movement or moving through space. And once you are talking about moving through space as it relates to Africans, then you must confront the forces that prohibit or restrict that movement. We have been watching the supermassive black hole at the centre of the dark forest of our galaxy for over 20 years, footage of this vigil is both largely uneventful and full of action. It is characterised by a multitude of presence, an oily, fuzzy-edged blackness in which bright white dots of varying sizes hover and surge erratically, silent. Simultaneously, nothing really happens. It is something of a paradox to be watching a black hole at all, in a landscape in which sight is dependent on time travel, And listening in to faint radio frequency signals, our tools, bodily and scientific, can only hint at the complexity. Here, where the force of gravity is so strong that it draws everything into an untold depth of being, there is nothing to see at all. Instead, we observe its event horizon, a point of no return from which an object passing through will be sucked in. At 10 million degrees centigrade, the horizon is the black hole's hottest and brightest feature. Without it, we would not know it was there at all. It is a moment in the darkness where feverish, luminous action precipitates absence and in so doing, validates a presence which cannot be seen. The absence implied by hole is also a misnomer. This is a blackness quite unlike the oil-slick vacuum of space which fills the telescope. This is a darkness which hoovers up. It eats planets, it swallows stars by incrementally slurping in their matter, eliciting a flare of light in their wake. It inhales, insatiably, and in return spews light back at us at seemingly impossible speeds of superluminal motion. This is a weighty hole, a hulking hole, a spectacular force of black gravity which holds an enormous quantity of light. When Questlove, extended Einstein's beautifully titled theory of quantum entanglement, spooky action at a distance. That is the phenomena in which two remote objects can be almost inexplicably conjoined, such that one can be moved, altered, affected, without ever physically touching the other. He knew, as Colossal has taught me, that blackness too exists in a spooky condition. Simultaneously bodily, geological, political, atmospheric, planetary, cosmic, conjoined quest love says einstein was talking about physics of course but to me he's talking about something closer to home the way that other people affect you the way that your life is entangled in theirs whether or not there's a clear line of connection
4: ah uh, sit and wonder sometimes i read the paper every day
1: You have to be careful when moving through the cemetery. In some cases, caskets have been exhumed from these graves and holes remain where liberators have finally made it home to countries of which only dreams existed when they had died. Zimbabwe, Mozambique, Malawi, South Africa, to name a few. Dreams of those countries exist again today, of governments able to assert relations between people and between people and the earth beyond the profit motive, and in which black presence and futurity is a project in the making and not in retreat. For those of us concerned with space, the journey continues. A keen understanding of quantum mechanics should give us pause, While you may not be able to see the enormity of a growing body of energy and light, that does not mean you cannot witness its effects or comprehend the veracity of its presence. Perhaps, through the careful study of black holes, shifting between light years forward and back, remaining attentive to the matter which bursts forth and the gravity of the emancipatory ideas which draw us closer, we may find the strength to take flight. To make something happen. Let's
3: make something happen. Let's make something happen. Gotta get it together forever. Gotta get it together for brothers. Gotta get it
2: together for sisters.
0: Edward Nkoloso announced the launch of Zambia's space program three years after the Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin became the first human in space. Our spacecraft, Cyclops One, he said, will soar into deep, abysmal space beyond the epicycles of the seventh heaven. With Ilza Wolf, we travel across time and hemispheres and landscapes of emotion, from the devastation left in the wake of the 1913 Land Act in South Africa, to the 1966 John Coltrane Quartet performance in Nagasaki, two decades after the catastrophic atomic bomb attacks. Ilza reads a poem from an anonymous friend written during a period of confinement and isolation brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic, and her own affective letter in response pondering deep, dark, black peace, leaflets falling from the sky announcing impending destruction and the gentle healing of breath.
4: Black Peace on Earth by Anonymous 2020 Black Desire Enclosed, clouded, shrouded, 10, 11, need. Chapter 6. Health. My present state of health. My monthly periods have just been continuous this month since the new complication of bronchitis and anemia and something else. I do not know. You too. I said I would return all the books you lent me, all the books you were looking for, for your French project. He says George in the French way. These books are very advanced. There are films embedded in them. Mysterious exotica, mysterious erotica. And a unity of joy. Black peace on earth. Joy where the wind don't blow. 15 July. Crewman. Crewman. Schumann. Booman. Shaman. Bogeyman. Bogues is the one you should talk to about, is the one that writes about Dukom shaman, obia, obia, lulu, vuyo, lu, luyolo, ghoul, gugu. Teacups, teapots, cracked desires at the centre, a pass office, a pass office. A pass redness can the white redden as the white reddens Red hill 5 July As say slums clear and sail as as a slum a slums clear the away 6 July. His crewman kiss furnishes the plain sorrow of the Bay of Blacktown. Home. A resting house. Home. A resting. Incapable. Hate my blah. 4 August. To my friend the poet, thank you for your words, I think you have captured in poetic form the landscape of emotion and thought that matches the visuals I have been sending you and the conversations we have been having. I have sent you wordless images and in return you offer your own poetry of images. May I expand our exchange with a few more thoughts and some more stories? In an early poem called My Home, Bessie Head invites us into her home. She writes, Come and see my home. It is any place where nobody gives orders. It is clearly an invitation, but she asks that anyone who accepts the invitation should take a certain responsibility. She asks, Tread softly, tread softly, the walls breathe peace, deep, dark, black peace, and the wind don't blow. One could perhaps imagine that at the time that she wrote this, the early 1960s, John Coltrane heard her voice from Seroe, all the way from New York, from where he was composing music like Alabama, and a love supreme. In 1966, the John Coltrane Quartet toured Japan 20 odd years after the devastating atomic bomb attacks in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. In Nagasaki, he opened their performance with Peace on Earth. It is a performance considered by many who attended the concert or who heard about the performance as a moment of collective healing. I think of the story and it makes me remember as a child the sensation of the breath of a beloved parent gently blowing on a wound that has just been inflicted on you by some accident while playing. I remember the acknowledgement and care through the act of blowing. That is the soothing balm, rather than the application of the salve Or even the administering of the bandage. I'd like to link these two stories, Coltrane blowing peace on earth in Nagasaki and Bessie Head's careful invitation to come to her house and share in the experience of black peace that the house offers. Incidentally, did you know that prior to the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings in 1945, the Allied forces dropped warning leaflets from the aircrafts so that civilians could prepare for evacuation. The image of the atomic cloud is imprinted into our collective imagination, but less so are images of falling leaflets with this important message pouring downward and blowing into and onto the city, some falling into the hands of the intended receivers, others blowing aimlessly in the street. It reminds me of what a friend once wrote to me regarding the power of the word, that the drop of the atomic bomb was given through word. But here another tension exists where the word through these leaflets is able to warn against impending death and destruction. The same technology that is behind issuing death is also there to warn about impending death. Personally, I know too little about this history to know if such footage exists, but I was able to track down an image of one such leaflet on Wikipedia for our conversation. also in the images i sent you you will notice a pattern of people in front of their homes peter Magubane's portrait of winnie madikizela mandela in front of her house to which she was banished to by the apartheid police is iconic and one can have long conversations just about that picture then they are also the ones of Robert Sebukwe in his house to which he was confined to for nine years on Robben Island. He looks relaxed and joyful, a kind of composure that belies the indignity that he suffered by being in solitary confinement for so long. But I also sent you some images of another figure in front of his house the two of Saul Plyke and his daughter Violet. Plyke, in 1926 on his 50th birthday, received a house as a gift from his friends and loved ones. Two photographs exist of him in front of this house. In both images, he is seated next to his daughter Violet and behind a writing desk and typewriter. Two distinct differences occur in these two photos, however. In the one he's wearing a hat but looking away from the camera. The other, he is looking straight at the camera. No hat, but this time with a pipe. In both cases, Violet holds the same pose, which is a slight side profile and looking at the camera. Behind, we see the windows and perhaps the entrance to the house. These images are in two separate biographies on Plyki, one by Brian Willen, the other by Siatsele Modire Mulema. Willen chose the hat pose and Mulema chose the pipe. To me, both these images seem like draughts of the other, in preparation of a final pose and testing various stances. I would be keen to see a final portrait if such a thing exists. The screenshots of the film included in my earlier email to you is of the 1984 film Tiamelo, A Place of Goodness. I'm sending you the YouTube link as I write. Please have a look if you have not done so yet. The film is narrated by Ellen Cuswayo, who herself is an important figure in our history, but in this film we learn a little more about Plyke. In fact, Ellen takes us to his hometown where we meet some of the people that knew him. It opens with a song and her walking the streets of London, retracing the steps Plyke took during the publication of Native Life in South Africa. The famous book about the 1913 Land Act. Please have a look at this film if you have time. It's not the easiest film to watch aesthetically. It is not that creative. Yet, as an archival object, it is highly informative of some important moments in our spatial history. I was particularly moved by the exchange between Ellen Cuswayo and Blanche Tsimatima. In one scene, we sit in on a conversation where Blanche describes how she was able to inherit a large farm from her deceased brother. The transfer of property is not without obstacles for Blanche. She finds out that as a woman, She's not allowed to inherit land, yet as the only surviving descendant, she was entitled to this land, and she fights for her right to the property. She says that she simply put on a pair of trousers, went to the deeds office, and demanded her inheritance. Of course, we learn later in the film that in 1974, Her farm is declared a black spot by the apartheid government and she and her family is moved off the farm that she cultivated throughout her life. In one image, Ellen and Blanche is captured on the threshold of what is the ruins of her homestead. This scene powerfully depicts the hardships so many black families suffered because of the 1960s and 1970s forced removals and the consequences of the 1913 Land Act. I'm so happy I found this film, this visual document. As you will see, I think that I'm particularly drawn to the way in which the story is told, by way of walking in and amongst the ruins, recalling the space from memory and then the meditation offered for the future. At one point, Ellen puts a blanket over Blanche. The camera pans out and we see more of the remnants of the stone house. The act of shrouding Blanche with this blanket is a beautiful way of enclosing her and this terrible history with a sense of meditation and homage. So yes, these images I sent you, the words, your poem, which we have now called Black Peace on Earth, all of which you've coupled so well, is a kind of broad capture of many connections that we both saw in the patterns of forced removal, destruction of homes, And also the act of homage. I thank you for joining me on this. With much appreciation,
0: Ilza. The text Ilza reads from is titled Black Peace on Earth and is published on Eflux. In 2016, Ilza co founded the publication series Pumphlet to talk about art, architecture, and stuff. It exists to publish interventions into the social imaginary. For Victor Gama, musical instruments are living organisms and a means of communicating beyond our material worlds. Gama's work, both the instrument and the resulting music, weaves together the complex strands of the cultural, social, spiritual, and natural. He speaks to us about the work of Augusto Zita, an anthropologist who disappeared during the Cold War years of conflict in Angola.
3: Victor Gama's process begins with the creation of entirely new instruments whose designs are steeped in symbolic meaning. In Gama's philosophy, heavily influenced by the pre-colonial cosmology of his country of birth, Angola, the instrument is a ritual form, a container of meaning whose design reflects stories, beliefs, and social and natural events. Here he talks to us about the toa, a harp-like instrument meant to be played by two people born out of the military upheavals in Angola from the late 70s onwards.
2: So the Toa uh, is connected to the nests of uh, sociable weaver birds that exist in the Namib desert, in the south of Kunene as well, throughout the Namib in Namibia and also in the Kalahari desert, where you see bundles of uh, nests put together. One, one whole bundle can be many many nests, can house many families of, of weaver birds. They live in a, a, a kind of a, a social community of birds and uh, it's uh, usually hanging from either from trees or from electrical poles or telephone poles supported by the pole itself or by the trunk of the tree. So it's it's built around the trunk or the pole or or whatever they can hang it on. Uh, And it's a whole ecosystem. At the same time is also an incredible uh, sound installation because uh, the sound of it, of many birds together, changes throughout the day. In the early morning, they all leave to go and look for food. During the day, they're busy reconstructing the nest. At night, there's different sounds because they're coming back. Uh, there's lots of uh, things going on. There are even little snakes that prey on the eggs. So it's a whole ecosystem with a whole uh, yeah, a sound atmosphere there. And so I was very uh, taken by, by, by that. But the other thing that impacted me was when I started seeing many of these nests empty uh, in the south of Angola, in the border with Namibia. During the conflict years, especially uh, during the the 80s when uh, South Africa had invaded the south of Angola and there were lots of bombings, carpet bombings along the uh, the villages and cities in the south of Angola, especially in Kunene and Kwandukubango. And so I realized that, you know, nature is one of the first to take flight when there is a conflict, uh, when there is such a level of, of violence and such level of, of noise also. <laughs> and it's the fear of, of such a uh, Dramatic event. So uh, uh, the nests were empty, or many of them were, were totally empty. Also, a lot of the, the fauna there had, had vanished, had left, and uh, basically migrated to north of Namibia, where it was safer. So, in, in the particular case of the Toa, I was very, I wanted to create music that, that related to that, and that in a way could communicate with with the birds somehow, you know, symbolically. And that comes back to my own research into the origins of uh, musical instruments, how uh, they were created, who created them, and for what purposes. And uh, this is not new research. I I did it for my own uh, understanding of it. But uh, I realized that uh, most of uh, the early instruments were created by musicians who wanted to create music. So the creators of music had to create the tools to do it. And at those times, beginning in prehistory and until early history, and until recently, and still today, many instruments are, are, are connected to uh, the need to communicate beyond our material world. So the need to, to communicate to our nature, the nature around us, the nature of the planet, that goes beyond just what we perceive materially. So there is, you know, obviously you encounter a lot of ritualistic practices, ceremonial music that uh, addresses the, uh, you know, the spiritual world, the ancestral world. Uh, they are used to activate the, the processes that lead to communicating with the, that spiritual world, uh, which in fact is kind of connecting both dimensions in which we live.
3: Augusto Zita vanished during the years of conflict with apartheid South Africa. His fragmentary archive forms the bedrock of one of Victor's long-term projects in the Namib Desert, Tectonic Tombwa. Here Victor talks to us about how he stumbled across his notes during a research trip to Johannesburg in 1998.
2: Augusto Zito was a young anthropologist who, in the early 80s, or throughout the 80s, was doing a research in the Namib Desert in Angola, uh, in the southwest coast of Angola. I uh, stumbled upon his notes when I went to uh, Johannesburg on a different project. At the time, I was recording a lot of musicians and singers in churches, in the area of Johannesburg, Zion churches, and... uh, Catholic and evangelical etc, and talking to people and and I ended up in a psychiatric uh, hospital uh, to record a choir of nurses and then suddenly uh, you know in this in this very unusual uh, environment where there were people around and then the, the nurses. And then they started singing, and suddenly someone comes in and um, and asked to sing as well, and so they stopped. And this guy was a an ex-soldier that uh, had been in Angola, traumatized, and you know uh, he was there. He was basically uh, there, and I recorded him and. Uh, he he went away and later when when I was leaving he handed me this this you know folder with with this notes. Uh, at the time I didn't even have much time to to look at it and uh, and left and um, uh, that that's basically how I, I got the the notes. Then when I looked at them I could make. It, I could make sense of it uh, uh, first of all the, it's very hard to read it because it's written in, in, a, in a way that makes it really hard and um, but then I realized these were uh, notes written by someone who was was doing some kind of research)
3: Nearly a decade later, in 2006, Victor traveled to the Namib Desert to reconstruct Augusto Zita's field notes, which focused on a set of derelict administrative buildings built along a 90-kilometer road from the city of Namib to the port city of Tombua. Zita's work departs from Thomas More's Utopia, published in 1516, as the source text for understanding Portuguese colonial administration in Angola.
2: In 2006, I went back to Namib and started working on the, on the notes, and his research was based on the concept of utopia directly related to Thomas More's book, uh, Utopia. The book describes uh, a society that should, in principle, be uh, uh, the perfect society for that time, the 1400s. The book was edited 24 years after Columbus landed in an island in the Caribbean. So the promise of vast new territories to be conquered was in the air, you know, and uh, and was a big expectation already at that time. Um, So Augusto Zita was relating that concept, those expectations, and that perspective of conquest by European powers as the main drive for uh, colonization of of his country, Angola, which is also my country. So he was really uh, trying to understand, by analyzing a sample of the infrastructure that Portuguese developed throughout the country and during the period of, of colonization, particularly in the last decades of the 19th and early 20th century. That's when really the main development of infrastructure happened in in Angola by building roads, building many things and putting together uh, a country and a society that uh, was an image of what Portugal was at that time. Uh, The administration, the territorial administration, everything was kind of like neatly designed as a European metropolis. He was very interested in in analyzing a road that goes from Namib, which is the port city, to Tombua, which is the last small city, small town on the southwest coast of Angola. And uh, there are six houses separated uh, by about 10-12 kilometers from each other in ruins, along the road that connects Namib and Tombo, these these two towns. Um, And when you drive along the the road, you pass by these houses, and and you almost don't notice them, because they are just ruins. They have no roof, but they are built. uh, Their architecture reflects the colonial architecture of the 40s, 50s, or 30s, 40s, 50s. And uh, uh, the six houses actually start with the main house, which was built in Namib in the seventies, which is a theater, which was never finished. So it's also in kind of a a, a ruined or derelict uh, state. And it follows a bit the modernistic architecture of uh, Brazilian architects like Niemeyer it's built in cement, so and it's it's round. It's totally round. It's like a, a hemisphere. And uh, the road ends in a church, which also is the There are a number of things here that are very interesting in the way that they put together. His field work, apparently, he found that this conjunction of things could explain the basic principle or template for creating a grid along the whole country that would be uh, efficient in uh, dominating the whole territory and its people and creating an ideal society for those people that came to live there from, from you know, from Portugal, from Europe, uh, which when you read Utopia, you will find clear references to this kind of process of creating the ideal society, at least at that time. But what I think that Augustus Zita was trying to put forward as an hypothesis, as a thesis, was that uh, this template was a reflection of that drive uh, to create a better society, the ideal, finally the ideal society for Europeans to live in peace among themselves, since they Europe was a battlefield, basically, until, until very recently. And so the notes are quite fragmented, they, they, but they give that idea of, of someone who is uh, putting forward questions. So I, I think that it was more like in the process of developing the research question. Uh, so his notes uh, uh, are not a final thesis.
3: Augusto Zita's research not only reversed the directional gaze of colonial anthropology, but also drew on indigenous knowledge systems, namely the animist belief that all objects, places, and creatures are imbued with spiritual matter.
2: So he was using the same tools that uh, anthropology was was created by by Europeans, Uh, but reversing it and studying the... Uh, the people that came to his country and and trying to understand them and their purpose and their ideas and their, you know, systems. And he he was also using other methods that helped him gather information. And so he he was using divination systems. He was using, uh, for instance, collecting leaves of, of particular plants like Delvice mirabilis one of them, endogenous in the, in the Namib desert, uh, collecting uh, types of sands, dragging a stick along a, a circle around each of the houses, kind of collecting the sound, uh, recording the sound, trying to even look at the topography and at the houses, scanning the houses with, with video and photography uh, from every angle. Maybe trying to reconstruct the three dimensional model of of each of the houses, and all of these, as far as I could understand, from two points of views, one which seems to be more scientific than the other that seems to be more uh, in line with this this knowledge system with this uh, uh, which sometimes you know sometimes we we tend to say traditional. Uh, but I think that uh, they, they, they are established uh, methodologies, trying to gather information uh, not just from the visual world, the materialistic world, but also the implied uh, virtual or, you know, what's behind objects and beings and uh, what's behind our existence and our, our nature. I tend to try to avoid uh, using many times the term "spiritual" because it's not enough to explain uh, that domain. So that's what, in my view, makes Augusto Zita's research quite interesting uh, and important to to continue. Augusto Zita's notes halt
3: abruptly in 1987. By then, the Namib had become a major hotspot as the conflict edged to a close with the Battle of Kuwaito-Guanavale, the final Cold War battle fought on African soil.
2: A lot of the things that are known about Augusta Zita are still not entirely exact, you know. When I put forward the date, 1987, it's because that's the last date or the latest date in his notes. Uh, uh, after that, there's, there's no notes, there is no more date. August Zito was this apparently independent researcher doing his research in Namib when in 1987 there was a big mass landing of military gear, hardware, equipment and, and soldiers in Namib to come to the rescue of the Angolan and Cuban armies, well, holding on to a, a very strategic position in Kuitu uh, cuanaval which was in the Cuanducubango province. And so the Namib became a, a really hot spot and many sabotage operations were happening. We We knew, I mean, I was in Angola at that time and we knew that at any time we could expect sabotage operations throughout Angola by special forces from the SADF, one of which was uh, an attempt to blow up the oil refinery in Luanda, Uh, but many others were happening and a lot of people were disappearing, were being killed, were being taken from Angola to whatever. Project Coast, which was the development of chemical weapons, had uh, we know now by documentation that that's available, that included also operations in the South of Angola. So he was uh, most probably either abducted or killed in Namib, and uh, I think you know, and, and this after putting many dots together. Uh, gathered from, from his notes, he was trying to uh, get uh, satellite pictures to analyze the topography of the, the territory that he was researching. So, uh, looking at the houses from above, uh, looking around the topography of the Namib Desert around this, this, this uh, road, which is 100 kilometers long, almost a straight line from one town to another and uh, it's possible that when trying to find uh, satellite pictures he triggered alarm bells in the uh, secret service uh, or whoever was maybe surveying him or or whatever uh, for some reason that could have been a trigger to take him out uh, because it wasn't Uh, very normal at that time for anyone to try and and get satellite pictures. We we were not, the internet didn't exist yet, there was no Google Earth or Google Maps. So if you are in amoeba and you're trying to get satellite pictures, obviously, uh, you know, you become a target. The assumption that he he, he was probably killed in one of these operations is quite uh, plausible.
3: Pointing to apartheid South Africa's nuclear weapons program, Augusto Zito's notes include an unfinished chapter titled From Utopia to Nuclear Weapons, which engages how the Western dream of an ideal society does not take nature into consideration, and therefore it should be replaced by another dream.
2: Also the connection with with nuclear is that the The Verstappen base at the Kalahari Desert, which was the center for nuclear testing, the first attempt to test a nuclear weapon by South Africa was done at Verstappen where they had drilled boreholes to do a subterranean test in the desert. But the trial uh, had to be stopped because a Russian satellite, Soviet satellite, Uh, detected that and uh, alerted the Americans. And the US at that time in the 70s, mid to late 70s, were no longer interested in uh, South Africa having nuclear weapons. That was already quite late in this uh, arms race to develop nuclear weapons. So the, the US already had its allies. South Africa was still considered an ally, and they actually were helped in their development of their nuclear program by the U.S. But the U.S. put pressure on the South African army to not test, and so they closed it. But then again, uh, you know, if you are in an army trying to get satellite pictures, uh, that's another big reason to think that this is uh, Yeah, this is unusual, to say the least. How he relates it to uh, utopia, I think it's quite logical. If you go out there and you try to conquer territory from other people and then turn it into an ideal society, and then you want to preserve that ideal society from attacks, from possible allies of the natives, With this kind of expansionism, you're creating immense tensions around the world, around the the planet, right? So you've got to defend what you conquer. And the ultimate weapon is the nuclear weapon. So on one hand, you've got this desire to create a utopic society, the ideal society, that necessarily has to be sustained by using some people, obviously the natives, to support it through cheap labour or free labour because it's a conquest. It's a conquest of a territory that belongs to other people. Uh, Then you will have to develop the weapons to protect it.
3: One of the main propositions in Zita's notes is that all things are witnesses. Indigenous research methodologies can be used to challenge Western constructs of history and truth.
2: What Augusto Zito was proposing is that, you know, plants, the houses, the terrain around it, the way you can look at the area from above, so the use of satellite pictures, which shows some kind of a pattern that was formed when roads were, uh, you know, imprinted on, onto, the, onto the territory. All of those things can bring in information. And so that's one of his propositions. And uh, the houses themselves are are amazing. When you look at them from a satellite picture, which now we can through Google Earth, you see the the houses and, of course, the interior of that, there's no roof. So the, the, the roof hasn't been there for decades. And you see a dark shade. There's no light within it and I think that um, Augusto Zito was considering it as as a container of uh, meanings and a container of events of actions of uh, stuff that happened there and and from which you know you can also gather information and uh, by scanning it from all sides and from above you can somehow get get some information so he was collecting this, this information in order to then later try to analyze it by uh, possibly some tools or, or developing the tools to analyze it and to bring out the, the, the information. Also, similarly, the, the, the way he was using a stick to go around the houses in big circles, uh, dragging a stick on the ground and recording the sound was like uh, using a sonar system and trying to kind of map out, you know, uh, a, a kind of uh, uh, graphic representation of, of data. Uh, what kind of data, we don't know, but uh, and maybe you didn't know. The idea was that, uh, okay, th- this could work, so let's do it. And let's have this information, and then later on we'll, we'll develop the tools to analyze it. I think I saw.
1: Like a dream, as if I saw it in my sleep. But I was awake. Uncovered. Exposed in that light. I saw something just
0: beneath the surface, something
3: unfailable, emerging.
0: Vela 6911 is another of Victor's long-term projects based on the diary of a South African Navy officer, Lieutenant Lindsay Rook who took part in a secret atmospheric nuclear weapons test conducted in 1979 by South Africa and Israel off the coast of Antarctica. Thank you for listening. In the next episode, we ask how the global Swahili worlds might reframe our thinking of connections across waters. You will hear from Kenyan novelist and researcher Ivan Adiambo, Halima Ali, an architect from Zanzibar, and Meghna Singh, a researcher and artist from New Delhi, based in Cape Town. The Archive of Forgetfulness project is co-curated by Huda Tehob and Bongani Corner and is made possible with the support of the Goethe Institute. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for updates.